Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today we're pleased to welcome along Nahid de Belgeon, who is an author and somatic movement educator, also known as the Nervous System Whisperer. She runs an online clinic specialising in chronic stress and anxiety, burnout and pain management. And she also works with psychotherapists who refer their clients when talking therapy reaches a conclusion. Her first book, Soothe, the book your nervous system has been longing for, is out in March 2024. Really pleased that you could join us today. Nahid, welcome. Thank you so much, Naomi and David. How are you both? I'm very well, and it's very nice to meet you, Nahid. And I will confess right at the beginning that uh, you're very active in an area that I know very little about. Um, So I'm looking forward (laughs) to learning quite a lot. So tell me, what is a somatic movement educator? Is is that just uh, a smart way to talk about yoga? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I think we know so little about contemplative practices and practices that can soothe our systems. Yoga is probably the the most well-known of all of those practices, isn't it? But actually, it differs from it quite dramatically because soma means of the living body. Um, And I'm trained in Feldenkrais as well as uh, some other somatic movements. Um, But what it does is you start from the beginning of the process. So it's movement based, but you start at the beginning of the process, which is the brain to affect the end of the process, which is the muscle. Um, And so what that means is it's a body upwards approach, like a bottom up approach, as opposed to cognitive mind top down approach. Um, And in a typically in a session, you won't be doing repetitive movement so I think you know I call it kind of um, the yoga industry I'm going to make a distinction between the yoga industry and yoga teachers Um, and so typically in the yoga industry you're making shapes aren't you so you go in and you make shapes and you feel kind of okay for a bit and then you know you go back to your normal life and your real life and all all the things that um, stress you out in your life probably but what how this is different is that actually over time your nervous system changes because that's what I'm affecting or that's what you're affecting in this work so I'll just briefly describe your nervous system it's your brain your spinal cord and all of the messages from that into your organs and your body and from your organs and body back to your spinal cord and your brain so really I'm kind of dealing with that that's that's the area that I'm working in it's kind of how to disrupt your default um, responses to things. So you use the the term the yoga industry, which sounds to my ears, at any rate, slightly disparaging. Ah. Am am I right in picking that up? So I I had um, yoga studios and fitness studios in central London, and they they were very, you know, I was very particular that the yoga we offered was very slow and very mindful to kind of counteract everything else that was going on in your life and to act as a counterpoint to it and then we also had fitness because I think it's really good to keep fit and to keep moving so we had very short fitness classes that would complement them so you did one thing and then the other and the yoga industry I feel is um, it kind of apes the culture that it's born out of so it's all about competition keeping up 
wearing the right leggings. Um, it's all about consumption, I feel. And it doesn't really answer the root of what it is to be human, I don't think. And I think that's very different from, you know, a good yoga teacher who's been practicing for a long time, who might teach you on a one. So I, I just wanted to make that distinction between an industry that actually keeps you buying and a discipline that has the ability to um, soothe your nervous system in some way. I see. So how did you get interested in the uh, practice of yoga? So I think like most people who are do what they do, I was looking for a solution for all of my um, uh, uh, kind of mental health issues, if you like. I find, you know, I always used to find the world quite... Um, cruel <laughs> and it's sort of knowing all about all the things that happen in the world how can you care about things but still keep your own um sanity um and i used to suffer from chronic anxiety my household was quite um volatile and so yeah i was very very anxious so much so that i'm, I'm from london um and i couldn't get on the tube it just felt i used to get it have really extreme panic attacks so i was probably one of the first people that used to walk everywhere across london and everyone thought i was quite mad um so really it was to kind of fix that when i was quite young i understood that movement helped to pacify me and soothe and calm my system down so i started running when i first wanted to leave home i started kickboxing when I left my first husband and kind of thinking about leaving him and then I started yoga when I worked for a very fast-paced very well-paid technology company but I was just miserable in it and I kind of was left one day and then got into yoga from that and really enjoyed the transformative powers of yoga but the thing that was there was something about it that was really transformative but what you can't do is you can't sit at a desk if you're feeling stressed. You can't drop into a yoga pose. You have to stay at the desk, don't you? So I was kind of looking for things that I could, um, yeah, calm my system down. That didn't mean that I had to go off to a class somewhere else. I just got really interested in that. And when I had my own yoga studios, I saw that people were coming in. And you really had them in a class for about 20 minutes because you'd have to undo their stresses for about 20 minutes. Um, and then they kind of get G'd up again to get ready to go back into their lives. And they had lots of issues. Like, they, you know, they weren't having periods. They weren't sleeping very well. They couldn't get pregnant. Um, and I wanted to get under the bonnet of what was going on. And so that kind of ignited my interest in nervous system regulation. So, yeah, so it was born out of, you know, wanting to calm my own system down. And then I started working in this area um, and... <clears throat> That's, you know, that's how my work developed. Thank you. That's that's a very interesting picture you've uh, given us uh, there. You've mentioned Feldenkrais already. Yes. What is that and why did you become interested? So somatic movement, it's an umbrella. Somatics is an umbrella term. And underneath of it, you might have heard of Rolfing or the Alexandra Technique. Um, and Feldenkrais sits under that as well. Um, and he was a guy called Moshe Feldenkrais. He used to live in Ukraine and then throughout the wars made his way over to England, actually. And he was an engi engineer and a physicist and a black belt in judo. And he had injured his knee 
And instead of having an operation, because at the time you would have ended up, you know, there wasn't keyhole surgery, so he probably would have ended up in a wheelchair. He decided to apply his own knowledge of the human body and philosophy and um, some you know, other disciplines that he knew to kind of fix himself. And he understood that it was all about rebooting your brain to your muscle communication, that kind of brain to body um, communication that he just had to kind of reignite and reboot and relearn. And from that, the Feldenkrais method was born. And he's no longer alive, of course, um, but he it it's a four year course. I think I chose Feldenkrais in particular because it was a very rigorous course. There's a hands on element to it as well, but it's not invasive. Um, and it's all about moving from the bones and um, allowing the nervous system to reorganize. So it's incredibly empowering. And I, I suppose I really love the difference between that and yoga because yoga is it's directed and you're kind of. You're sort of absolving all responsibility for your body to a teacher, which I have problems with <laughs> um, because it's not very empowering. And when the teacher isn't there, you kind of feel a bit hopeless. You're like, well, what do I do now? Whereas the Feldenkrais method was so interesting to me because it was all about being given some guidance that you can interpret and then you can turn it into pure sensation. And that's what you're listening to. Like, how does it feel if I do this? How does it feel if I do that? Oh, I'm going to choose this because it feels much more comfortable. Um, and from that, your nervous system just retrains because actually your nervous system is develops by the experiences that you feed it. Which is incredibly profound, actually, because it it, it allows you the the space and the opportunity to feed it with new experiences. Um, and so my method, the human method, it was really from all of the amazing practices that I have sought over the years. I've taught people, I've trialed and tweaked it on myself and on clients. And it's kind of the best of nervous system kind of soothing, if you like. But of course, you know, it, it's it's all also very dependent on every individual that I teach. Thank you. That, that sounds fascinating. So, Naomi. You've given me a question here that I'm not sure I really understand. Could you explain it to me? Yeah, sure. I was I was wondering, Nahid, it seems like people diverge a lot in terms of their ability to move from mm. middle age onwards. Um, and I wondered, you know, you see a lot of people who have like really poor mobility Um later on in in life and mm. is is that just a pathway that they're destined for or do people have the ability to change how their bodies are going to become later on in life yeah really really good question um i think that's the beauty of this work is that you do completely have the ability to be as mobile as you want to be and of course as you get older there's a little bit of muscle wasted but actually if you think about it middle age is quite an interesting point in life because you've probably got quite a lot of responsibilities you know maybe children maybe aging parents you're also going through a lot of health concerns yourself um possibly um and for women that's often perimenopause many menopause sorry menopause and um what you sort of could do, what you could put up with emotionally when you're much younger because you don't have as many responsibilities, that's that it just becomes a real crunch point in midlife. 
plus you know look at our lifestyles we're really sedentary um we might drive to the gym and drive back after sitting down all day our leisure time is spent sitting down watching you know movies on the telly uh, maybe we don't cook maybe we're eating frozen meals that are reheated or you know takeaways or whatever our our actual experience of life gets narrow and narrow and narrow as you get older and it's that that influences your mobility not your aging so I have clients that range from, well, from about their 20s to their 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, they all have really different experiences of mobility and of freedom in movement. And it's completely dependent on what they do every day. So if you, for instance, if you're somebody in your 60s and you've fallen over and you've hurt your hip and you need a hip hop say then that's going to not only physically limit your movements, but also actually emotionally, you're going to kind of think that you can't do things. And so what often happens is people do less. They have a hip hop and then think, I've got to be really careful about myself. So it's almost like they have the mindset of an old person. And then that stops you being daring and, you know, wanting to do different things and adventurous and all the rest of it. And that then carries on limiting what you allow yourself to do. So it's actually that that ends ends up, you know, making you feel less mobile and as if you are getting a lot older. And what's interesting about that is the practice that you always have done, say if you've always done yoga, that's not really going to shift you out of anything because, again, you've now set up a habit that you're good at and you're doing the same thing. So you're you're going to get really good at that but that might not help you functionally getting your leg over a gate to climb over if you're going for a big long walk. So it's kind of looking at um, the experiences that you feed your nervous system. And if you do that, and if you're constantly trying out new things, then it means that you have the ability to be really resilient and kind of put yourself in a different shape. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it does. And I, I think there are some parallels there with our kind of cognitive fitness for want of a better word as well yeah. aren't there that yeah actually, you know actually we're encouraged to rather than do the same things that we're good at throughout our life that there's there's a point to deciding to learn a language or learn a musical instrument later on in life because you're challenging your brain by doing something different unless you already of course speak lots of languages or already played lots of instruments but it's about the need to do something that's really quite different Exactly. to what you would ordinarily do yes and and as you get older you tend not to do that you tend to have the same friends the same you know the same social circle you tend to eat the same sort of food watch the same sort of telly and on and on and on and you just start to really narrow your um, life down and actually what's interesting about that is I have a few clients with Parkinson's and the ones who are really open, I mean, actually, everyone ends up having to be open with me because I, I really encourage them to try new things. But the ones, you know, who come along with a lot of fear and they've been told by their doctor um, that, you know, this is a limitation. They have a very different pathway through the beginnings of their Parkinson's symptoms than the ones who come, come to me and just say, I, I just want to live a big life. Um, and so they're much more daring and they'll, you know, they'll be able to do more things. And actually, lots of my clients with Parkinson's, they manage it really, really well because they're very open to moving in different ways and trying new things and not being limited by it. So, again, back to your work, you know, you sort of understand, don't you, that if you have limiting beliefs, that's going to have a huge influence on how life goes for you, your mental health, your physical health and on. 
Yeah. It's kind of bring up the question, doesn't it, of whether age causes restriction or whether restriction. So I think aging. restriction I think restriction causes aging. Just in all of my experience of the different types of people I teach over the years, I think without a doubt restriction causes the aging. Because you know that older adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. I mean I think the worst thing you can do with old people is sit them down and infantilize them <laughs> and you know give them food at regular times in their medication and they're not sitting they're not moving at all and what's so interesting about movement is I think we've been really undersold it we kind of think we're a brain with a body but actually we're a body with a brain and you know our brains develop not for thinking they develop for complex movements when we were hunter gatherers so thinking sensing and movement are really intricately linked in different regions of the brain they sort of come together to allow you to do all of those things and that's what this work um, kind of utilizes is it's that because you're sensing, you're thinking, you're imagining and you're moving all at the same time. And I just wanted to say something about your self image. As I say, we kind of, you know, the old paradigm is that we're brains with a body and we think we're all about the cognitive mind. Um, but actually your self image is made up of your physiology, your sensations, your um, emotions, your thinking your actions and your behaviors, which is pretty much all of you, isn't it? And mm -hmm. I think all approaches to better biological health need to, you know, need to kind of encompass all of those things because otherwise you're very, you know, you're, you're very in one direction and you're not kind of, you're not thinking about yourself as a, as a holistic organism. Um, Cause I think actually what we are is organisms of metabolism. We kind of take things in, we process them and we get rid of things we don't need and we keep the good stuff. Um, and it's a, we're, so that means that implies that we are dynamic um, and and moving organisms rather than what we've become is sitting at a desk doing that all day long and then sitting at home and da, da, da. And that starts to really, again, it limits your worldview and it limits the ability of, um, you know, your possibility of what you think you can do. Yeah, it's been inter really interesting to see developments in talking therapies that are gradually trying to move more, uh, more of a physicality into, into yes. the work. So like sensory motor psychotherapy or somatic experiencing, yeah. for instance, where there's a real yeah. recognition that the body needs to not be disembodied, the brain needs to not be disembodied from the from the body yeah and you you've spoken already a little bit about how movement is related to emotional well-being in terms of your own example around around anxiety but mm -hmm. can people with restricted movement or injuries benefit um emotionally or mentally from engaging in movement focused activities can you say a bit more about yeah absolutely um so you can you can think about movement so i have some people who are um managing pain and their movements are quite restricted. And so what I get them to do is I get them to imagine the movement so that they don't actually physically, I mean, lots of the movements are quite small, not all of them, but they can be quite small. So you can move your fingers or your hands or your eyelids or your tongue in your mouth. There's lots of kind of accessible practices that you can do, but you can also very successfully imagine the movement and it still kind of um, activates the part of your brain that are to do with movement. Probably not as much as if you were actually moving yourself um, but can I get you to imagine something now? Do you want to like mm -hmm. just, yeah. yeah, okay. So if you close your eyes and with your right foot, start to make it lighter and lighter as if you were about to lift it up from the floor and then release it. And just do that a few times, very, very slowly, 
like a, a little bit more like a dimmer switch rather than on off switch. And for most people, you will feel something happening in your ankle, in your calf, in your thigh, maybe your knee, maybe at your hip joint. Did you feel that? Yeah, great. So that's a really good example of how you can do things in your imagination because muscles, you know, the same communication is happening from the brain to the muscle. It's just that you're not actually doing it. But, you know, it gets switched on because your brain is predictive and it goes, hang on a minute, this feels like she's about to lift her foot. And so it will, you know, start all the processes to get you to lift your foot. So it's really interesting. Yes, anyone can do it. You can do it uh, if you have restrictive movement. You can do it in restricted places and spaces. Yeah. Thank you. And do you see kind of common patterns of restricted movements and, you know, or other common strategies that you try and get people to engage in to inhabit their bodies in a way that might be healthier for them? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um and there's two things that I'm looking for that I'm really interested in. And it's a transmission of forces through your bones. Um, and then from there, it's about, you know, how that allows the breath to flow through you. So, again, because of our habits and maybe because we are, you know, we feel we're always under threat. So our kind of our, our state of alarm is always quite heightened. And um, a lot of people have this sort of closed front body. It's almost like you're trying to protect your organs or, you know, your yourself from the onslaught that's about to come um, and not helped, of course, by sitting like this. And what that does to your physiology is that it, it pulls your bones out of your bones are meant to stack on top of the other and it pulls your bones out. And when your bones pull out of whack, it means that your muscles have got to work a lot harder. Um, and then that takes the veins and, you know, everything else with it. So the whole system kind of becomes um, disorganized. And when that happens, it sends from the body up into the brain that you are in a state of alarm. And then the, all the processes that happen in the brain, that you ought to feel anxious or stressed or whatever, you know, kind of this reiteration from body to brain, brain to body. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people, especially coming out of COVID as well, because that was... You know, it, it's sort of been a state of alarm for quite a long time now, hasn't it? So um, I'm seeing lots of people that are very, very tight around here, um, kind of sunken chests and with this kind of head forwards of the spine. And what that puts a lot of pressure on the skeletal system, but also it starts to put a lot of pressure on the organs because your organs are quite elastic and they have a rhythm to them, which is, you know, set by the rhythm of your breath. Um, and once they become weight bearing, it means that they're not moving as fully as they ought to, which makes it's kind of like overclocking the system. So everything's going to work a lot harder to keep you functioning well. Um, and so the very first and very easy thing that you can do to counter that isn't a big back thing. Because when you're lying on the floor, you've got the floor behind you and your bones can descend. And then that starts to open up the soft tissue around the bones that hold them in be that muscle connective tissue or whatever so um yeah that that's a very very common thing but there's there's two really good ways to um counter um anxious minds um anxious minds rumination and anything that's to do with not being in the present moment and the two things to do are to locate yourself so whether you eat uh you know on the floor and you can feel the floor and you can kind of think about breathing into the floor or you're on your back 
or on the floor or your back against the wall is another good one. And I often give people who are having panic attacks, I'll get a phone call saying, I'm having a panic attack. I'm in the middle of Paddington Station. It's like, quick, go and get your back against the wall somewhere or sit against the bench or something like that. Because then that locates you in space. Because when you're in gravity, you have no idea when you start and end. You know, that's something that you feed into your brain. You have to know this is the edges of me by feeling edges. Um, so that's a really important thing to do. And the second one is to locate yourself in time. And that's why breathing is so great, because you can breathe in and say, I'm breathing in and breathe out and say to yourself, I'm breathing out. And then, you know, you're right here right now, not in this forwards or backwards kind of um, situation which is often where we are yeah so those two things I think are really you know they'll they'll be your superpower if you can adopt them thank you and why why is um I mean again in such remote psychotherapy there's a lot of thinking about how our beliefs are reflected within our body structure and that was partly why I got really interested in your classes actually during the the pandemic and would really recommend uh, your movement classes to anybody who's listening who might be interested to try um to try um Sahid, uh, Nahid's uh, methods but what, what what's your thoughts about why opening up the body is so important for our beliefs about ourselves okay so the way to think about it is that your brain sits in a black box yeah it doesn't know anything you're feeding information into your brain through your eyes your you know smells hearing tastes what you touch and feel and so on and also through this sense which is called interoception and that's that's an interpretation of these sensations coming into the body um and what you feed your brain it's quite important. I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to, you can just repeat your question again. Sorry, you might need to edit this bit. Can yeah, no, that's, that's fine. Yeah. So, so I was wondering, Nahid, um, yeah. about why opening up the body is so important that's for right. our beliefs about ourselves. Okay, so I'm going to start. So, um, so why is it important? How does it, how does opening up the body open up your mind is that the question yes well your brain sits in a black box if you think about it and so all the information that you feed it through your senses is um will give it will give it color and, and an idea about your environment and it builds up a body map in your brain so if I always do this sort of movement, I'm going to do a hand movement. But if I do this sort of movement with my right arm, it thinks that my right arm does this all the time. Yeah. Um, and so when you do make very limited movements, the information that you're feeding your brain to build up this body map in the brain of you in your environment is very limited. Once you start opening up that idea and you move your arm in lots of different ways, it kind of thinks, oh, the joint of the shoulder joint, you know, has got a lot more space and a lot more range. And then so has the elbow joint and the wrist and the hand. And it builds up a much more nuanced idea of what you can do. And when you do that, you've got your whole body working holistically with you. You're not kind of fighting it. And so that just increases everything from feeling grounded to feeling confident to feeling full of possibility. Um, and you're also got you've got your bones stacked up well as well when you when you're starting to improve 
how your body is organized, how the bones are organized. Um, and when that happens, you're not in a state of alarm. You're in a state of kind of, um, yeah, possibility. So as soon as that happens, you've got the ability to be, you know, aware, curious, creative, all the things actually we're designed to do rather than just survive. Thank you. And why doesn't traditional yoga always help with that? Because, again, I'm going to make the distinction between um, the yoga industry and maybe traditional, proper traditional yoga, because yoga was once upon a time taught as a one to one. So it's quite bespoke. And, you know, you'd come along with whatever you come along with and you were given particular specific practices to help you with that. Once you get into a class situation of 30, 40 people in the class, then all you can do is really is a keep fit class. So that's what I think, you know, the yoga industry has become. It's kind of just a different way for people to keep fit because the movement practice isn't just yoga. That isn't what yoga is. Yoga actually has a philosophy attached to it and very conveniently because it requires thought and time and consideration we don't do it here you know we just want to go to a class and we want to do something that we call yoga to make ourselves feel better but it's still repetitive movements just like it is going to gym and picking up a dumbbell and when you do the same thing you get very good at the same thing and you are just reinforcing that habit so that's why Plus, if you come from your life with your habits, you know, say if you have a restricted movement here and you're trying to do your yoga practice, that's not going to resolve that. It's actually going to emphasize that. And so I think that's that's why, because it just becomes an industry and um, something to just churn people in through the doors. I think you're kind of touching on um, that element of competitiveness that can be there in those classes yeah. as well. It's like when you go to the gym and lift weights, you hear the bears grunting and, uh, you know, as they each try to push more and more weight. But I think you do see a similar practice in yoga classes, even if yoga classes tend to be um, more female clients. So there's a there's a tendency to try and push and drive the students, I think, to do to do movement that might not really be comfortably within their sphere of movement at that point in time. And then people get injured, don't they? Yeah, exactly that. And also actually there's a lot of repetitive movements in there. If you look at, um, you know, dynamic yoga with lots of flows, doing all of those chaturangas, which is a plank into a downward dog, it's just not very good for the shoulder joint. Um, and having lots of people of different levels in very big classes, all you can do really is crowd control. You're not, I don't feel, I don't think anyway, I don't think you're teaching. I think you're just commanding a crowd to do the same thing. And, you know, our culture is so that it programs us to be good at things and to be the best at things. Um, and I think there's a lot more to the human condition than just ambition and speed. I think there's a, you know, there's a whole range of nuance of what we could be and how we could be and how we could respond to things. And I think it's um I think it's a real shame when it's just reduced to some sort of competitive sport. Mm. Thank you. I, I really love the way you talk about these things so uh honestly, Aid. And taking this a bit further, um yes. because uh, yoga and you've mentioned the distinction between yoga teacher and the yoga industry mm -hmm. but yoga itself often seems to become associated with the concept of guru 
um, who then many times seem to become corrupt. Why do you think that happens? And does it highlight an issue with the whole concept of student, teacher and yoga? Yeah, I, I think it does. And I'm um, that's one of the reasons I moved away from it. And I don't really call myself a yoga teacher anymore um, because I think ultimately all power corrupts. Um, and we used to have a bit of a macabre joke, but we used to have a bit of a joke that if you lasted 10 years in your yoga studios without a scandal, <laughs> you were doing quite well. Um, so there's many reasons, isn't it? It's patriarchal, it's, it's a patriarchal system. So that's what I mean about it aping the culture that it's born out of. Um, it can be quite cultish where nobody talks about things. Um, there's an element of if you can't do th certain things, you're thought of as not spiritual enough. Have you heard that in a yoga class, Naomi? Where, you know, you have to kind of let go of your ego <laughs> to be able to do something. And you just think, maybe it's just because you haven't really prepped that joint very well, you know. Um, so I think there's a lot of language and mysticism around yoga that's used to um, to abuse power. And there's lots of, um, you know, and people are quite silent about that. So, and I, I've had a history of just meeting some absolutely, you, you know, quite mad people who were yoga teachers who were just real opportunists and they wanted to be in this world because, you know, there was women and there was vulnerability and there was, and you were able to abuse it in some way because, you know, you're either handsome or fit or, or, or something like that. And it's yeah, it's I, I I've completely moved away for those reasons because there has been so many scandals that were really kept quiet and even being denied now that I just think it's very unhealthy. It's, it can be quite an unhealthy place to be. And it's really interesting. There was a recent um, thing in America. I just thought it was so f interesting that they started something where you could have cards that said you were willing to be touched or not. And I just thought, why can't you just ask people and, and give them, empower them to tell you how they want to be treated in your class? I mean, first of all, that you have to produce cards because that means there's obviously something going on. But secondly of all, it really disempowers you if you don't allow people to use their voice. So, yeah, all for all of those reasons, I just find that whole world a bit um slightly toxic actually and um i think ultimately all power corrupts i mean look at our leaders you know you're in for too long you make a lot of money you have lots of lobbyists paying you and what are you going to do i heard that story about the yoga cards as well and it made me shudder too because i just thought it, it smacks a bit of setting up a situation whereby the person who's said that they're okay with touch then finds themselves you know you might be okay with a touch on the arm but you might not like touching in other places so absolutely it, it, it did smack a bit of something a little bit sinister yeah and also you know what women you know you wouldn't have to do that in a class that's run by a woman <laughs> so there's something going on there isn't there that's unspoken but it's funny isn't it how we then have to sort of um change our behavior to allow this system to continue instead of changing the system <laughs> and and so back to your question about is it something to do with the teacher student relationship i do have quite a lot of issues with that because i come from a background where you know we were always told what to think and what to do um which i don't take very kindly to because i want to be curious and i want to make up my own mind and i want to be able to change my mind as well 
Um, and so what I love, I guess, about the the place that I'm in and the teaching that I do, it's it's guidance. It's it's would you like to? It's why don't you figure it out for yourself? So, you know, I often kind of joke with my clients when they go, oh, my God, I feel so amazing. That was so great. And I now can do this. You know, thank you so much. I'm like, I didn't do anything, really. I just helped you to cultivate the right conditions for your nervous system to learn. And I just think that's great because, you know, you don't need me. You just need a lesson here and there um, and your nervous system is constantly changing and learning and I think that's a personally I just think that for me as a teacher it's a, a, a and I that's why actually I call myself an educator because I'm, I'm not sure I love the word teacher because of the connotations um, so being an educator is just I can I can help you um, change your ideas about things or I can offer you new possibilities just feels a lot more egalitarian I guess yeah Thank you. Yeah, you put that uh, brilliantly. Uh, and, and of course, our question about leaders, do, do leaders become corrupt or do the corrupt become leaders? Uh, all seems so interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting because actually, you know, I know a lot of people that might want to go into politics, but they wouldn't because they feel that they don't have the they don't have the kind of the the toughness for it. And I just think, God, that's so sad, isn't it, that you feel you have to be tough. I'd actually like people to be self-reflective, <laughs> compassionate. I'd like those to be the attributes of going into politics, but um, isn't right. happening. <laughs> right. It's and quite happening at the moment, is it? <laughs> and who would want to mix with those kinds of people? Many Gosh, of them. I know. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, Parliament is meant to be so toxic, isn't it, for for women MPs and lots of MPs um, and um, staff as well. But yeah, who would want to mix with that? So do you think our ability to move, getting back to your you know, core hmm. activity, have any bearing on our relationships with others? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, yeah, I absolutely do. Because when you regulate your own nervous system, you're also regulating the nervous system of everybody else around you because you're in this kind of co-regulation kind of relationship. Um, so things I, I mean, my husband said to me when we were moving and moving is always so stressful. He just said, you're so calm. And I was like, well, one would hope after 25 years of learning how to um, learning all the best kind of practices to calm my system down. Um, so, yeah, without a doubt, if you, you know, and I'm sure you know it yourself when you're in a room with someone who's got really frenetic energy, it kind of you, you feel it as well, don't you? So, yeah, without a doubt, you, I think the first step is that you self-regulate and I think that is your responsibility. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's your responsibility to regulate yourself. And then when you do that, you'll have a ripple effect with your family, your community. Um, and then so that's the second step. And then the third step is then you then you do that. You take that out into the world. Um, and another reason I'm I'm not a fan of yoga industry is because we forgot about all of that. It was just all about self-improvement. Um, and that can only really take you so far because guess what? You have to live in the world. So it is super important um, in your in cultivating a really compassionate relationship with yourself and then with your environment, that, you know, and the two kind of go hand in hand. Does raise a really interesting ethical question, though, I think, about people who were in residential services where residential services there's quite often a lot of very negative and energy around you might be managing feelings like 
hate, a lot of anger and aggression, a lot of a lot of fear, um, a lot of hopelessness, you know, the potential for death um, or serious self-harm. And, you know, we can see that that often gets reflected in the stress levels of staff. But actually, it sounds like from what you're saying, there'd be something really useful about staff in services, making sure that they were to make better, you know, make sure their nervous systems are better regulated in order to create a more positive balance of energy within these environments. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you, you know, I'm sure if anyone's spoken to you on cat kindly, you're not going to want to do the thing that they tell you to do. And then that creates a struggle right from the get go, doesn't it? So, yeah, the, I mean, I think in all caring professions as well you know if you look at a doctor's training it's really brutal you know long hours and and it's just it's just incredible to me that the people that are put in charge of caring for other people and looking after them are so unregulated dysregulated themselves and there's something wrong I think where we think that we have to break people to be able to do their things and mothers as well you know there's something wrong I think in our culture where we think that Mothers have to break themselves in order to serve. I think I think we need a real um, three sixty kind of thinking about that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think I think it would completely revolutionise those sort of working conditions. One of the writers that I've really enjoyed reading his work is Dan Siegel, who is a psychiatrist and but a really psychologically minded psychiatrist. And he talks about the concept of we, so M W E, the idea that we exist in coexistence with each other. I'm wondering, as you were talking, in what ways we might shut other people out with our bodies and how we can practice sort of being more comfortable with being in a system with other people. And do you mean that in prisons, particularly? Uh, well, no, I was just thinking generally in in relationships. I'd made a note after our conversation, actually, and trying to find a way to to ask that question. It might be a okay. bit clumsy. <laughs> um, well, I think if you're not, if you don't have a good relationship with yourself, it makes it really difficult to have a good relationship with other people, doesn't it? A trusting, grounded relationship. Um, and my parents were never taught to self-regulate um, or show themselves compassion. So they didn't really have the tools to pass on to me. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? That once you show people how to look after themselves, if, if you don't have an experience of that, where are you going to get it from? But once you show people how they can look after themselves and they feel really happy in their in their own bodies and they feel embodied, which is really important, then it's sort of not willpower that you then go on to be kinder to other people and open to their points of view. I mean, the best way to, to convince somebody of your one-sided argument or a binding argument is to keep people poor and hungry and angry, isn't it? And that's kind of social media, isn't it? It's, it's to keep you feeling slightly envious of other people and it's to make you angry about things constantly. Um because then there's no space or nuance to understand other people's point of view or to show empathy for someone whose experience you might not share. And I think, you know, I think that's probably is something that's been really heightened over the last, you know, however long we've had the bane of social media. And I, I say that 
on the flip side, it's really good because people who aren't normally given a voice are given a voice. But it's um, how can you have nuanced conversations on platforms that demand short, <laughs> short responses or, you know, visual responses? Yeah, it's really it's it's really interesting. So I think the more you have a good relationship or a compassionate relationship with yourself, the more open you can be to others. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sure all of us here have had a row with someone, maybe a row with someone that you live with and they come in the room and you haven't really resolved it and you haven't got time to resolve it but you'll be like <laughs> and you'll sort of turn their back onto them like cats and dogs do sometimes when they're a bit in the mood you know there'll be little nuanced things that you do don't you to show that you are still disapproving you haven't processed it you're still in disapprovement mode um so there's lots of things we can do and actually you probably sense what's going on with somebody way before they open their mouth and it that might be based on experience with them so, for instance, my my mum, bless her, was always very stressed and a bit cross. And so every time she speaks, my whole body kind of goes <laughs> and tenses up because I'm expecting her to say something uh, disapproving or something that's um, she doesn't mean to, but something that isn't very kind. And then you you think, oh, actually, I'm in my mid 50s. I can relax a bit and I can just let her speak. And then actually she speaks because she's much more comfortable. I'm much more comfortable with myself. She's much more comfortable in herself. And together we're much more comfortable with each other. So our body language is actually very different now. And, you know, I didn't mean to do it. It happened as a process of the work that I do. So it's really interesting. And that, yeah, great question. Thank you. And Nahid, normally at the end, we ask people how to look after themselves, but we can really hear that you've spent a lot of time sort of really finding what works for you and then making use of that and sharing your knowledge with others. Is there, are there any other ways that, you, any other things that you would recommend for people in prisons or other restricted communities or listeners that they could do for their health that we've not touched on that you think actually that's a, that's a really important thing that people do? Yes. So breathing is the very first port of call. Um, and most of us breathe too fast. I think in the UK, it's something like um, 12 to 16 breaths per minute. And in the US, it's something like 18 to 22. But actually, studies have shown that anything between five and seven breaths per minute will really help to calm your system down. And that's free. So I use a six seconds in and a six seconds out count. And what that does is it balances the two parts of your nervous system that are, you know, one part is go, go, go. And one part is your no go part. You might have heard of it as sympathetic and parasympathetic, which is such a mouthful, isn't it? But if you just think about your go and no go, there's no emotion attached to it. And breathing in and out for six seconds on the inhale and then six seconds on the exhale, that's 12 seconds times that by five, that gives you a minute. Yep. So it's five breaths per minute is the one that I practice. And it just works a treat. And even if you do it for, you know, one breath in and then one breath out, that will immediately come the system. What it does is it delivers oxygen to the body at a really regular pace. And over time, the frequencies of your brain, your heart and your lungs come into coherence because the internal body has got these rhythms um, and everything just starts working really evenly and smoothly. And it really calms your brain down. So that's a really good thing to do. And and you can do it um, first thing in the morning to kind of change the baseline of a heightened nervous system, which is pretty much all, all of us. And you can also do it in real time. 
So I was once driving on a small country lane with loads of cars behind me and being an out of towner, I was sticking to the speed limit and there's loads of cars behind me wanting me to go faster. And so I just, you know, practiced this breathing all the way up the hill until we were on the motorway. And it really helped to not feel completely, um, to not let other people's kind of energy disrupt mine and just keep on a really calm and even keel so I that's the that's the very first thing I would do is is regulate your breathing and have a breathing practice um and mine is five breaths per minute but as I say anything between five and seven breaths works um that's what the studies mm. show kind of will really calm the system thank you and just before we go would you like to mm. say a few words about your book which is due out and what what pe- what listeners will find in your book Yes, thank you. So my book called Soothe, the book your nervous system has been longing for, is really a culmination of all of the research and the trialing and the and the practicing that I've done over the years. And I very much love science to things. I'm not at all woo-woo, and I'm not saying that's bad. Um, woo-woo's bad, I'm not saying that, but it's just for me, I, I want to know, well, why does this work? Great. Now I understand that. How, you know, how can I apply it to myself? Um, So the first part of the book is all about context, you know, what makes up your nervous system? What are the things that will influence it? um, And you know, we go from development all the way through to nutrition. And then the second part of the book is things to do in different day parts, morning, lunchtime, evening, preparing for bed. And then the final part of it is all about what you can do little tiny practices that you can do if you're you know if you need something in the heat of the moment it's called emotional rescue and they're they're sort of a just really easy things to that you can do to recover from something and then to reset your nervous system before you move on because I think what we do too much is we try and butt up lots of different activities all at once and we just move manically from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and so it kind of feels a bit like, you know, you do that all day and then you crash at night and you're so tense, you can't really sleep because your mind's really busy and your body's a bit collapsed because you've stayed in the same position. But actually, a better way to think about your nervous system is that, you know, something happens and then you recover from it and you reset and then something else happens, you recover and you reset. And your recovery could very simply be the breath or it could be getting outside, or it could be moving your eyeballs around in your skull. You know, it, it could be very, very simple, um, short little micro lessons that you do to recover from the micro stresses of the day. And that's such a great way to kind of really manage a, a, a good balance and equilibrium of the nervous system throughout the year. So yeah, the book is all about that. Lots of really easy to do lessons that you can incorporate into your day. Thank and you it's available much, in March, yes. Thank you yeah. very much, Nahid. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, both of you. Thanks a lot. Lovely to meet you and uh, brilliant, lovely to meet you. Yeah. brilliant conversation. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, lovely. I really look forward to 